A very warm welcome to session 13 of the 4th WSC. This session features six very special people whose lives have been impacted by sepsis one way or another, but they didn't falter. They turned their experience with sepsis into advocacy, awareness raising, and more. But don't take my word for it, hear for yourself. Over to Michael Clark from Sepsibel in Belgium, moderator of this session and sepsis survivor himself. Michael? Good afternoon. Good morning or good evening, everyone. And uh, welcome to this session. First, I'd thank the organizers of this Congress for scheduling this particular panel session. In this session, our panel is going to discuss the impact of survivors and family members to improve sepsis awareness and advocacy. Now, uh, in our panel, I think we're missing one person at the moment, but we have a good mix of survivors those who lost family, in this case, children, to sepsis, and one of our panel members whose contacts with sepsis victims and family members have made her a, a, a fervent advocate for sepsis, sepsis awareness and action. Now, a few introductions. Uh, I'll start with myself, Michael Clark. I'm a chartered accountant, retired after a long international career with PricewaterhouseCoopers and a survivor of a septic shock seven years ago. Together with a small group of survivors and supporters in Belgium, I'm kept busy at the moment helping to set up a Belgian sepsis advocacy and patient support group, Sepsibel. That's me. Um, May I now ask each of you in the panel to briefly introduce yourself and add or underline anything that you think might not be apparent from the bio, which is already on the website. Um, I'm going to start by asking first Kieran, who's uh, on the line up on the screen. Kieran, quick Hi, Michael. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for Global Sepsis Alliance and thank you for all our fellow sufferers who are on here. My name is Kieran Staunton. April the 1st, 2012 is a nightmare. We got a message at 6.35, our son was dead from sepsis. We had never heard from sepsis. We had never heard about it. No one mentioned it in the hospital. Then we find out that a quarter of a million Americans a year were dying from sepsis. We went to CDC. They had nothing on their website under the letter S for sepsis. Uh, we knocked on a lot of doors. And there was no template for setting up an organization as we did. And we have come a long way in New York regulations, Rory's regulations. We have saved 16,000 lives in four years. We have spoken in Ireland. We've spoken in Germany. We've spoken at the WHO. And all of us who are in this club shouldn't be in it. Although we're here, we have been dealt a nasty hand in life. Thank you. Thank you, Kieran. Um, next one I can see on my screen is Mary, Mary Steele. Hi, I'm sorry, it's two in the morning here, so it might be a little bit croaky. Um, my... Uh, thank you first for the opportunity to um, present today. Um, my son Preston died uh, 20 years ago. Um, 
August at two and a half years old. And he, his death was at the time um, attributed to complications with pneumonia. Um, a pseudomonas uh, bacterium overwhelmed him. But leading up to his death, um, I presented to the emergency department two times and was sent home and then presented the third time after my son's lungs collapsed and he began coughing blood. And regardless of my pleas and concern, it was only then that it was taken seriously and the severity of his illness was recognized. Uh, he was taken straight up to the pediatric intensive care unit and placed on life support. Um, sepsis was never used as a word. It was an overwhelming infection. A few short hours, he went into cardiac arrest twice and couldn't be resuscitated the second time. The word sepsis was not communicated and my advocacy didn't begin with sepsis. It began to improve ventilation techniques for critically ill children. So um, I and friends of mine advocated for change in supporting research that raised over half a million Australian dollars uh, for training and equipment that translated into new ventilation techniques, significantly lowering the mortality and morbidity of children requiring uh, ventilation techniques. And these techniques are used around the world today. It wasn't until 2013 that I had come to find out that my son died of sepsis and that his death was likely preventable. I became connected to other bereaved families who'd lost their children to sepsis through clinician, clinicians that I worked with um, on improved ventilation who wanted to understand how healthy children could die of sepsis. And it was at that point I became active in, in sepsis um, awareness and advocating for change in diagnosis and treatment. Um, if I, I think if I hadn't already been working to raise awareness about illness and, um, and, and critically illness, critical illness in children, I would never, may not even know to this day that he died of sepsis. Uh, but since 2017, I've been involved in um, strategic sepsis program committees, awareness raising, uh, lobbying for government funding and priority to be given to improve diagnosis and treatment of sepsis. Thank you, Mary. Next up, I see on my uh, list seems to be Melissa. Melissa. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you again for the opportunity to be here today. Um, my story, again, very similar to that of Kieran and, and, and Mary's. Um, my son, William, died of sepsis in December 2014. Um, again, echoed, we never heard the word sepsis. The word sepsis was never used. And it was only when we received his death certificate that we knew he died of it. Um, unfortunately, William had a case of protracted pneumonia, which was undiagnosed. Um, we had visited uh, the, the GP, the, you know, the doctors, um, multiple occasions. And in the 36 hours before he died, we went to two emergency doctors and the out of hours and we were sent home and William died at home. Um, so I didn't set up the UK Sepsis Trust, but joined it in its very, very early days. Some of you will know of Dr. Ron Daniels, who is the chief exec of the trust. I probably don't need to introduce him. <laughs> Um, but we advocate for better awareness of sepsis, diagnosis of sepsis, recognition of sepsis. And we do an awful lot in the UK for the education and clinical side of ensuring that healthcare professionals understand sepsis, 
treat it, recognize it, but also use the word. I think that that's being kind of mentioned here today. Actually, we need we need to start using the word. So I share William's story in the hope for um, advocacy, for awareness and better recognition. Thank you, Melissa. Um, I see next on my screen, Ken. Ken Rothfield. Thank you very much, Michael. And uh, thank you everyone for joining this session. My name is Ken Rothfield. I'm a physician, I'm an anesthesiologist by training, and I practiced as an attending anesthesiologist for 21 years before transitioning to being a chief medical officer, a hospital administrator, back in 2014. About a year into my uh, role as a chief medical officer, I had a simple outpatient elective surgery. It was a hernia repair performed um, at a hospital where I used to run the anesthesia department uh, by my most trusted surgeon. And the night after surgery, I developed massive uh, abdominal distension and, and just unbearable pain. And because I was a VIP, I received alternate care. I think if I'd been just a regular citizen, I would have been asked to return to the emergency room. I would have had a CT scan and they would have reoperated on me for what was an obvious bowel obstruction. But instead, I was managed at home for a few days until I became very distressed and dehydrated and was admitted to the hospital. About 24 hours in my hospital stay, I developed a fever, and I also noticed that my blood pressure was declining. I was tachycardic. My wife told me I was breathing 32 times a minute, and uh, I was very familiar with sepsis because in 20, early 2015 or late 2014, the Centers for Medicaid uh, and Medicare here in the United States, CMS, the largest payer of, uh, of health care insurance, made mandatory reporting of compliance with sepsis bundle elements, best practices. So I was very familiar with the early warning signs of sepsis and the early management according to the bundle. So I alerted my nurse who brought another nurse and they had no idea what I was talking about. Literally no idea that I had SERS syndrome, early sepsis, and there was a specific bundle of care that I needed. So I told them to page the intern and I instructed the intern to have blood cultures drawn, administer broad spectrum antibiotics, administer fluids, uh, long story short, the next day I had uh, an exploratory laparotomy where I had dead gut um, and uh, wound up having a, a large operation, a bowel resection, and a long journey in the hospital that was quite complicated, but ultimately survived, and I'm here with you today. And um, as a brand new chief medical officer, I was very familiar with uh, sepsis bundle requirements and early treatment. And if I had not been in my position with the knowledge base I'd, got, I'd attained, I think I would have uh, succumbed in the hospital because it was a foreign concept to my providers on the early management of sepsis. So really, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid saved my life by introducing this bundle. So um, since then, I've been very interested in early recognition of sepsis at the hospitals where I have worked and trying to improve processes to improve sepsis mortality. Thank you. Thank you. And right, I see that um, Dean is now this. Could you say a few words? Because you are the exception, I think, because you are an activist without having suffered sepsis yourself. Thank you so much for having me. And um, I think it's really wonderful and laudable what you're doing today. And I'm just thrilled to be a part of it. Um, I suppose I consider myself the least important panelist here today. And you're right in saying that I don't have personal or first-hand lived experience of sepsis. 
but it is something that I feel very passionate about raising awareness in relation to. And that's because through my work as a barrister here in Ireland over the last um, nearly 12 years, I have seen uh, many, many families whose lives have been utterly changed and destroyed uh, because of the loss of a loved one to sepsis. Um, in many of those cases, they're young people, they're children. Um, but also I've seen many cases where people have um, come through the sepsis and uh, come out the other end of it, but with life changing permanent um, consequences. And so this was something I saw recur time and again throughout the course of my work, um, representing families at inquests and during the course of litigation. And I was just amazed that while there were wonderful people from the island of Ireland who had done amazing work like you're on here our other panelists that there wasn't any um dedicated sepsis charity here in the Republic of Ireland and so I decided you know um if you change nothing nothing changes so I decided to set about um the starting a charity here and so the Irish Sepsis Foundation was born in September 2022 um, we launched last year during uh, Sepsis Awareness Month and I had actually great support in the early stages from the UK Sepsis Trust as well. So it's lovely to be on a panel with them, um, with uh, people from there too. So that's really it. As I say, I, I definitely consider myself the least important panellist, but hopefully I have um, very real experience. I, I think I have a lot of real experience of many, many, many stories that I have seen and that I have been absolutely uh, touched by throughout the course of my own work. And so it's absolutely my honour to be here and to be a part of this. Thank you, Darren. And indeed, I think you'll make a very useful com contribution, um, given that you've very recently set up your activity. I think that's very important. And coming from somebody who's not actually uh, a sepsis victim. Thank you very much. Now I see we've got Luis Antonio Gordo, who's been able to join us. Uh, can we have a few words of introduction from you, please? Yes, thank you, Michael. Thank you, everyone. And, and good morning, good afternoon. Um, I'm uh, Luis Gordo. I'm from Mexico City. I'm an emergency and critical care physician. Um, and I'm the current director of uh, Sepsis Mexico, that is like uh, the UK Sepsis Trust or the any, any or other organizations. This is the Mexican version of, of this uh, patients and uh, training organization. We work in public awareness uh, in Mexico and in Latin America. And also we are uh, doing a lot of uh, healthcare and health professional training about sepsis for early recognition and treatment. Uh, I'm also a COVID survivor and, and we found here at the hospital in 2018, the post ICU and post sepsis clinic that is now a post COVID clinic also. So we deal every day with patients, with survivors and the families um, doing something to make them recovery from the sepsis and the diseases. And that's me. Thank you, Liz. Right. So let's now get into a, a discussion um, on this topic of what we can do for advocacy in 
um, making sepsis more widely known. Um, I have some questions I'm going to put to you, and I, if you could, we could go around quickly and address each question. Um, the first is when you were starting your advocacy, uh, how, how receptive did you find your national governments, healthcare, or other relevant official bodies? Uh, did you, for example, encounter any particular resistance? Perhaps we could uh, start as we did before with uh, Kieran. Um, there wasn't any welcome at any door that we went to. We had to push in every door we went to because people didn't know what sepsis was. We actually found so much uh, resistance of people were, how could this thing be done? That we actually made a graph ourselves. And we presented this graph to members of Congress and people in politics and state governments to show you that sepsis was killing more Americans than all the other well-known breast cancer, prostate cancer, and AIDS put together. And it was still how we didn't know that. And the hospitals didn't want anything else because the hospitals in their books were all fine. You know, um, the, in, in all the countries, they, they were all fine. The government were all fine. So we actually had to push in those doors, to tell the story and say, well, and in cases, my wife said to someone, well, if it was your child, would you be happy with the treatment? Or if it is your child in future, will you be happy with the treatment that my child received? And, and that's how we, we are at the very beginning. But there was no door saying, come on in. There was no one saying, we've been waiting. Because as I said, on CDC's website, the, um, the American Health, Inc., under the letter S, there was nothing for sepsis. So anyone that went to look for it couldn't find it. There was nothing on the internet when Rory died. So um, we had to start, as I said, we started the ball, the boulder at the very bottom of the hill. And be very successful in moving it up the hill. Sometimes it rolled back on top of us, but we just pushed it up again in, in some states. Melissa, what's your take on this question? Very similar to Kieran's again. Um, we've significant resistance um when william died um there was an, an investigation done into his death and 16 fa uh, failings and four missed opportunities to save his life and it was the report that gave us the foundation to push the um sepsis agenda there was a lot going on with sepsis in in the uk um, however, it hadn't really had the spotlight put on it. And I think there was a lot of um, toing and froing from the word septicemia, from bacteremia. And, and I think there was just a general confusion. So we had to overcome that first. But because William's story um, became a, a, a national, a public inquiry, people had to get up and stand up and listen. And I think because we were given the platform with the media, um, the government had to stand up and listen because if you put a grieving mother on a, a daytime TV show with 10 million viewers, the government has no choice but to stand up and listen. But it shouldn't be that way. Um, and there shouldn't be other mums like me or other families that have, have to do that. Um, but unfortunately, we were met with the same sort of obstacles. And, and now we do stand, they do stand up and listen. However, 
we do find that um, all conditions are vying for the same attention and the same pot of money. So it can become very, very difficult and strained. Yes, I can well imagine that. But uh, certainly having in, in Belgium, we compete, for example, with uh, cancer activities. So. Um, perhaps, um, Mary, you'd like to say a few words. Uh, yeah, thank you. Look, 20 years ago, sepsis wasn't even considered as an entity on its own that could be treated, really. It was just the secondary of what happened versus it's, you know, it's completely flipped now. But really have to advocacy, if it wasn't for Sepsis Australia, which was um, the Australian Sepsis Network, um, I, I don't know if we would come to, we would have come together. So um, because I knew some clinicians who were looking into my son's death years on and looking for answers and connected me and others to Sepsis Australia, we, we work under them. Um, Simon Finfer and Brett Abenbrook are, are just brilliant, compassionate people that care so much about um, those of us who have uh, are bereaved parents and those of us who have survived sepsis. And they they really, well, we have ideas and we work together. They um, support us um, and provide feedback on what we want to do and include us in all the activities of their, their national strategy. So um, it makes advocacy um, uh, you know, much easier. And just this past June, a national clinical standard was passed and it was because of um, Sepsis Australia that consumers like myself were involved in the working groups to to get that national standard, um, clinical standard across the the line. So um, we have a long way to go. You know, we're, we're now we're looking, you know, trying to look at a national campaign. Um, also, the state that I live in is incredibly forward in their um, their approaching sepsis as well um there's a group of clinicians that are just amazing because they they want to see change so um you know i don't think my anything would have been different 20 years ago sadly we've evolved and i i feel very hopeful um that things are changing thank you mary that sounds uh, positive developments um ken um was your experience similar to Kieran's in the States? Well, really, um, you know, sepsis has had more recognition uh, since 2015 when CMS did make this something that is part of public reporting. Uh, so there's been more awareness of sepsis. However, uh, getting clinicians to adhere to the bundle elements is a challenge. You know, doctors are fully independent. They don't like to practice cookbook medicine and following best practices uh, was a challenge early on. And we still have many performance gaps. CMS has continued to uh, change the reporting requirements or the bundle elements. And I think sepsis in the U.S. is best treated um, when a patient is admitted to the emergency room. I think there is, in general, better appreciation for sepsis and willingness 
to treat it according to accepted standards for patients in the emergency room. However, for patients who are inpatients, um, not as much because the clinicians may not be as sensitized to recognize early sepsis among inpatients and may be simply unaware of best practice in the bundle. And I think complicating that, there is debate as to whether or not the, uh, you know, we've been reporting sepsis results for over eight years. Has it really affected mortality? And there is conflicting data on whether or not the CMS bundles have really positively impacted sepsis outcomes. It definitely has increased the cost of care for sepsis patients who are now, because of suspected sepsis, getting tests, uh, intravenous fluids, and other interventions. But as someone who survived sepsis, really because of the early administration of antibiotics, which is one of the strongest parts of the bundle is early broad-spectrum antibiotic administration. Uh, I don't think we're ready to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think uh, really worldwide, we should be looking at um, the deliberate um, application of uh, elements of a bundle of care that are likely to improve outcomes, and also for organizations to have skin in the game. You know, currently in the U.S., we have to report our outcomes with sepsis. Uh, there aren't really any, any, any penalties for uh, non-compliance, it just is embarrassing to republic report publicly. And of course, mortality is one of the most important uh, publicly reported metrics to payers uh, because mortality is both a measure of the ability of hospitals to provide appropriate curative care and also appropriate end-of-life care because patients in hospice are excluded. So um, I wouldn't say that we have a lot of resistance from the payer side but getting this over the goal line for universal recognition and adherence to guidelines, I think, is an ongoing challenge. Okay, it sounds as if uh, here in Belgium we're up against stiffer, stiffer resistance. <laughs> um, Theron, perhaps you'd like to, as the most recent uh, um, advocate, say a few words on your experiences, whether you found it was, uh, you were pushing at open doors or more difficult more difficult I would certainly say um, absolutely the word resistance is something that resonates very much with me and when I went about setting up the charity which was in and of itself a very long and drawn out process going through the charities regulator here in Ireland I knocked at so many doors uh, I was contacting emergency medicine doctors ICU doctors um, people from the national sepsis program here in Ireland um, which was set up by our, our health service, the, the HSE. And I was just absolutely getting nowhere. I was either having um, doors not opened or doors opened for a brief second and then closed in my face again. And so, uh, you know, really, if it weren't for the goodwill of the ordinary people, we wouldn't exist. Um, we have eight members at present, um, no medical member. And um, I have just found it absolutely impossible to get anybody from within the Irish Health Service to kind of come on board and engage with us so far, at least anyway. And I know we're in our infancy. But again, I suppose just to say that, for example, Dr. Ron Daniels uh, was from the UK Sepsis Trust, was very helpful and you know even facilitated me with um, a number of video calls during the initial stages, which was great because I, I certainly wasn't getting that from many of the um, clinicians here. So I suppose in Ireland, um, there was a the very tragic um, death in October 2012 of Savita Halapanavar, who's, 
whose uh, death was due to sepsis and it made headlines worldwide and kind of shone a spotlight on that. Um, and it was in the wake of her death that the HSC here in Ireland established um, a sort of a, a sepsis programme, um, which we don't know a lot about. And it also, for the first time, published um, clinical guidelines on the management of sepsis. But I suppose what I'm hearing very much from the members of the public who are engaging with us is that it's very much for themselves or for the people working within the profession in the sense that um, the information isn't really available to the ordinary people. Um, and so that would very be very much be my experience. Um, since our website went live last September, we've had, you know, numerous contacts from people, but they're all from just ordinary people, members of the public, um, either wanting support and help or wanting actually to contribute and to assist us, which is great. Um, but I, I don't know what the reason and the rationale for it is um, when the health service and the government have been in the past so willing to budget for and fund and support other things like stroke and heart attack, which of course are huge killers. Um, they've put a lot into road safety campaigns, etc. Um, and yet sepsis, which is such a devastating, a huge cause of loss of life, uh, there is absolutely very little appetite for generating awareness as far as I can see, at least in my opinion. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think we're just round this question off with Louis. Are you like to add something from yes. Mexico? Yes, thank you. Uh, our experience is totally different uh, because we don't aim uh, general population. We focus on putting the word sepsis in the brain and in the mouth of the clinicians and the nurses and the healthcare personal. personal. So when uh, most of the times we heard this, the same history, uh, never uh, the, this patient, these mothers, these fathers uh, told us, no one told me was sepsis. I, I have never heard the word sepsis uh, in the, all the time my patient were, was in the hospital. So we are changing the, the way clinician, clinicians uh, transmit the information. Uh, we are putting the, the word in their brains, in their mouths, and spreading from the health profession, professionals to the general public, to the patients, to the relatives. Is, is, this is not just an infection. Your patient is not with pneumonia. Your patient is with pneumonia plus sepsis. So that's the way we are uh, uh, doing the, the public awareness. And then uh, when we train, we are um, doing these uh, survivors groups from those clinicians that are, uh, are being training. Uh, and we are doing sepsis code, what, what we call the sepsis code program in hospital by hospital. And we're training not just the emergency physicians or, or personnel, as just can uh, tell us, we are doing uh, the same with surgeons, with obstetricians, with internal medicine, with medical students, and we're pushing forward with the new generations of uh, doctors and nurses uh, all around the country to train them of what sepsis code and sepsis is, uh, so they can promote with the patients and the families. 
Um, now we have uh, the national guidelines for maternal sepsis. It's uh, about two years ago it was published. And for the pediatric sepsis also, and for the geriatric population also. So now we have uh, uh, trained enough people that is uh, taking decisions to make these national guidelines. But they were trained by our group. Thank you. Um, in the meantime, we've had a couple of questions coming up from the, the audience. And I'd just like to address one. There's one that's uh, from um, Imra Malik, which actually is aimed to uh, Kieran. Um, I don't know whether Kieran, you've seen this question, but she actually, she asked in particular whether you could um, share more details about the toolkit items and how to get legislators really to hear us. Now that, that links in a little bit with what we've just discussed, but, um, and I'd link it up also to a question that I had was in your advocacy action, what steps had the most impact and what was the, um, the um, let's say, what were the, the obstacles that you, you really had to overcome? Kieran, would you like to just tackle that question that's come in? Sure. Sorry, the mic, I was uh, muted there as people would be happy. As What are the most impact? And I think Mary and Melissa have walked this one with me, is when you tell the last three days of your child's life continuously and continuously and over and over at all events and the last two days, and the last day, and the doctors coming in shaking their heads, sorry, we couldn't save him or her. When you do that time and time again, it has an impact, and people will listen to it. And we did that, and we went from that to New York Times cover story, the most publicised one ever, on Rory's death, and then Governor Cuomo signed Rory's regulations into law to say there's a standard we expect for our citizens in every hospital that's licensed in New York State. That has saved 16,000 lives in four years. And getting a governor and a health commissioner to come down and say, here's what we're doing. And there was those, again, as I said, that said, we don't need those, we don't need regulations, everything is fine. Those were silenced by the governor and the health commissioner and others who said, it's not good enough. And it wasn't good enough for Preston. It wasn't good enough for William. It wasn't good enough for Rory. And to take that, we have the template. And I think what the question was going into other states, we have gone to many states to try and say, well, here is what, and, and this is the, what makes it very difficult as you say, we have a template that is saving lives. Oh, by the way, and saving a lot of money in the hospitals also. So you've got to double and there's still a hold on. So what we did this year is that we moved to the federal government and said, it is time for you to impose this. And I'll, it's coming up later on. I don't want to take up everyone else's time, but it is time for the federal government to step in. And we've had successes with that, but we have met the children that Rory's regulations have saved. And we've had the communications from other states 
who have bought the coffins, like Mary and Melissa and myself have bought. Unnecessary. Thank you. Um, going along, the, the, Ken, um, you're also in the States. Do you have anything to add to uh, on the question of um, what steps in advocacy have had the most impact? The... Um you know, certainly survivors groups are, you know, are, are very helpful in having a voice. And I think um, it's time for hospitals to realize that, in fact, sepsis is really the number one service line at most hospitals. It's the, it's the highest number of discharges with that diagnosis. So um, there's no way to overemphasize or oversupport sepsis uh, recognition and appropriate management. You know, I, I think the future, though, is to get a lot of sepsis management out of the hands of humans and to use more advanced early warning tools. And um, uh, so far, early warning tools, either algorithms uh, and such that run automatically in electronic medical records, have really failed to fulfill a promise for uh, bringing sepsis awareness to where it ought to be. But uh, it's a continuing journey. Thank you. Um, Continuing around the, around the table, so to speak, although we don't have a table. Um, in the case of uh, moving on perhaps to, to Ireland, uh, Deeran, um, as the most recent uh, um, activist, if I can put it that way, um, what, what steps have you found had the most impact in, in your um, action? Well, uh, we are very fortunate in the Irish Sepsis Foundation to have um, on our board um, Joe and Karen, whose son, Sean, um, was, who was an up-and-coming rapper, uh, died aged just 15 back uh, a, a number of years ago. And they actually, they're, they're involved with the charity now, but even before that, they had their own um, awareness campaign in his memory uh, called Little Red's Legacy. And one of the things that we did uh, just after we set up last September was we um, decided to run uh, a radio ad and um, we managed to negotiate a very good uh, deal with our national radio broadcaster here in Ireland. And we had a very, very short 40 seconds to go into a studio and record, uh, you know, a punchy short ad which ran throughout the month of December in the lead up to Christmas. And it was about um, making people aware. And essentially, during that those 40 seconds, Joe and Karen spoke at the beginning about losing Sean to, to sepsis and not knowing what sepsis was when he died. Um, you know, very like the three here of this panel, I'm sure, with their awful experiences to share. Um, and I think that was, that was one of the things that was... Um, one of our very first projects, but it was very powerful and very effective because it had such a mass reach. And it was something that we as a group felt that, you know, again, the health service or the government here in Ireland could have done and should have done easily in the past and, and never did. And it was something that we put an effort into and we think it was successful. So hopefully we will um, run further um, things like this, but that certainly was one of the things that we found good. But I mean, I think I would agree with the others uh, when they say, I can't imagine what it's like to have to continually tell and repeat your story of, of, of loss and grief 
and all that comes with that. Um, but I do think that it is just so effective and so powerful and, and that is what really gets to people's hearts. And I think that is the, you know, these are the really striking stories that resonate with people and that affect people on a deeper level. And I, I would just like to say to the three of those as well here on the panel that, you know, they could and they should be so, so immensely proud because they've no doubt that countless other parents have had the lives of their children spared because of their bravery. So while it is so, so difficult, um, I think it's really, really very commendable what they're doing um, to to just keep speaking about the story because that's it. It's 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 sharing and um, sharing that message is is saving lives. Thank you, Melissa. You you're in a position where you uh, are one with the most developed or one of the most developed actions, the uh, UK's Sepsis Trust. Um, what what have you found to be um, the most uh, steps or actions that have had the most impact? And we, we know that in the UK you've had uh, you had this tremendous sort of uh, advertising campaign, as I recall. Um, have the was that the most effective, or have there been other uh, actions that you found very very effective? Um, I think that so following William's death, there was um, a, a guideline brought in um, by NHS England um, for all healthcare professionals to follow that was mandated. So that's for community care, hospital care. Um, and that was a toolkit, um, a, a, a help guide uh, to help diagnose sepsis. And then obviously the sepsis six, which is, is widely used across the world. Um, we already had that, that was in place, but our biggest issue was actually getting the people at home to know about sepsis and then get to the healthcare that they desperately needed. So it's about public awareness and it was about getting the public to not just know the word sepsis, but be able to look at their loved ones and think that could be sepsis to understand it and then approach healthcare and say, could this be sepsis and have a conversation. Um, Following William's death, we had an enormous amount of media coverage and that really played into our hands. And following that, there was a huge campaign. Um, over 1.1 million healthcare professionals um, were contacted and made aware. Um, and we also did, I happened to do a viral video, which was a bit um, unorganised and overnight. And just a, a, I was heavily pregnant at the time and did a viral video. And overnight, it had 42 million views. And I couldn't have anticipated just the reach that that would have. And sometimes it's like Dorian said, and like Kieran said, um, it's the human voice. People don't want to look at the TV and think that could be me um, because it was me and it was Kieran and it was Mary. And um, that there's nothing more powerful than that. And I think, you know, going out and telling your story at conferences and talks and whatever it might be there's an emotional hangover that comes with that but I find that this is my way of parenting William now somehow because that's been taken from me so we've got nothing left to lose so we push every button we open every door we push every boulder up every hill and when we keep getting trampled on we trample back um, and I think I think that's it it's tenacity it's passion and when you stand up enough um, support in numbers, um, you know, create a wave 
um, create a tidal wave. And I think that's really important is the voice of the person, the voice of the people. Thank you. I think I'll have to come back to you with my Cepsibel group on your viral video experience because we're, we're still at a very early stage and every every tip, if I can put it that way, or any um, successful effort is certainly we can uh, use it in, in Belgium because in Belgium we are very much at uh, base We've got a long way to go before we catch up with many of you. Um, Mary, would you like to add anything on uh, what yeah. steps in your advocacy had the most impact? Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, <clears throat> in Australia, we're in a big country with a relatively small population and, and um, so, you know, quite disparate. But, um, you know, I think... Um, like Melissa and Kieran, I, I mean, my, my we use a, a, a photo. My son is this child could be any child. I mean, he could be anybody's child, right? And he, he's he's more the symbol um, because it is so hard to keep telling his story. I kind of look at him as just the poster boy now. But it is about um, people's stories. Um, again, Sepsis Australia, um, you know, bring brings up consumers together. Although every consumer also have their own way of advocating have either started their own charities um a young boy named thomas died uh, when he was 13 um on the northern territory where there's a highly indigenous population who is also our first nations people are the most vulnerable um to sepsis and they do um, a lot of targeted communication but they come to us as a consumer group under sepsis australia and we we, we share this stuff we we um talk about it, we spread the work that everyone else is doing. I think another um, a powerful um, medium has been social media. One of our sepsis uh, survivors has um, started just a you know, support Facebook page. Well, there's hundreds and hundreds of users now. And now we, and again, we have some really supportive clinician groups who are using that to survey and find out more. And I mean, sepsis Australia, well, we individually as consumers will knock on um, doors in our states, uh, the politicians, and try to get sepsis sort of front of mind because every time I see a report comes out that says, you know, um, in this state, cancer or heart or whatever are the leading causes of death that sepsis is never mentioned. I just want to go crazy. And so we advocate for change and awareness. But what what we're looking to now um, with Sepsis Australia is getting a national campaign um, and again, we've got a really good consumer group that's quite networked and it's, it's the guidance and leadership, I think of a, a group like a UK trust or a sepsis Australia is imperative because it, well, we all go and do our own, um, door knocking and, or to do it together, bringing us together and, um, sort of shared goals and, and, and then sharing each other's work has just been, um, it's been critical in a country like Australia where, you know, we're so far spread out. That, I guess, is also um, something in being spread out in, in the United States. I don't know whether, Ken, you have any reflections on on uh, getting the message across a, a very wide public. Well, you know, you'd think we would have made more progress than uh, 
than we have really made since um, CMS uh, reporting became mandatory here in the States. And as I said earlier, I think the biggest challenge is to get to all providers. Emergency room physicians are pretty well attuned to treating sepsis, but in other situations, not. And uh, I do a fair amount of peer review for other organizations. And I've recently just seen some terribly sad stories of patients with missed sepsis or delayed treatment, uh, which could have easily prevented a fatality. So, um, you know, getting the word out throughout all organizations at every, every level is incredibly important. Most larger hospitals have a position called a sepsis coordinator who works with the clinicians to ensure that the appropriate care is being delivered. They also abstract all the data to create reports to not only the government, but also then providing feedback to providers. And we've been doing this for a period of years now. And I think we've made some progress, but there is really quite a long way to go. And certainly when you get into more austere environments, uh, rural hospitals, critical access hospitals, they simply do not have the resources that uh, we have in the larger cities. Thank you. Um, I just might like to switch over to Luis, who's in a somewhat different situation in, in Mexico, as I understand it. But but what, what do you think is um, the most impactful uh, actions that you can you have been able to take or think about taking in in mexico yes um i, I think that we have two major or or most in fact impactful steps in the public awareness one is as as you have already said is the public and the media coverage of the uh, may, maybe some cases some some uh survivors or some uh, uh, tragic deaths of some patients. Or, but also we have uh, reached uh, institutions. Here in Mexico, the public and the private healthcare systems are really, really different. And uh, we try to uh, reach them with numbers, with data. So we are doing research about the Im impact of the sepsis early treatment recognition and in the, in the money, in the budgets of the public institution or the private institutions. And that's something uh, that is very, very impactful for everyone. Um, we, they don't care if they're working in the public institution at the government institution and in the private institution. When they say numbers, when they say uh, we are saving lives and money, uh, they they really turn into what the sepsis code program is, and th that that one I think is one of the most impactful uh, tools we have now to reach everyone and everywhere. Yeah, um, I, I, the questions come in, which I think I can put to put to every, as a general question. Um, it's about the the uh, position of um, in the protocols that may exist for handling the packages or bundles. Uh, to what extent uh, is anything included of listening in your country to what, uh, let's say, what's termed worried signs from, from uh, uh, relatives, uh, parents? Uh, to what extent is, is that? See, I, I know of two cases looking in my own case. In my case, when I had septic shock, 
the young medics were completely lost. And my wife was saying, look, you know, I think my husband is, is seriously ill now. Uh, what are you going to do about it? And the answer was, well, you know, they sort of hung around and waited. Uh, and recently, uh, we had uh, a case in, in the, the news here where um, uh, a lady, um, her, her mother, I think it was, um, was uh, admitted to hospital with signs of serious ill health. And the hospital was said, you know, this is nothing too serious. And, and you know, here's some medicine and, and go home. And she, she refused to leave the hospital. She insisted upon staying. And, and sure enough, she had sepsis. And uh, luckily, by insisting upon staying in the hospital, she got the treatment that was needed, only just. And the question, therefore, is, you know, to what extent do um, protocols flag that you should listen to the people, the family, the relatives or others who say, look, this person is ill. What's your experience in your countries? You just go around quickly upon this one. Lewis, since you're on the screen, you could start. Thank you. Um, yes, empowering uh, patients and relatives is very, very important for uh, general sepsis awareness, I think um, it, it should be both ways, you know, uh, we have some promotional videos, we have um, in, in the GSA and the World Sepsis Day website, we have uh, the What is Sepsis video in several languages and the infographics and the bucket cards that are uh, aimed to, to the general public, to the lay population. So yes, I, I think empowering everyone about what a sepsis is and, and the early signs is really, really important. As in a stroke or a heart attack or uh, epileptic uh, crisis or whatever disease you are treating and, and you're aiming, you have to empower the patient about the alarm data, alarm signs and symptoms so they can push the clinicians to look for them uh, for those uh, signs and symptoms in the early way. But if you don't have the, the healthcare professional training on this uh, early recognition, it, would work, it wouldn't work if you have a lot of public awareness and a lack of, of uh, healthcare professional awareness about sepsis. It, you you, have a, you get, need a balance among those two uh, knowledge in the general population and the Healthcare public, uh, healthcare uh, professionals. Thank you, Ken. Um, Ken or Kieran, what's what's your position on this in, in in the states as to whether any protocols really sort of highlight that you should listen to the the family and the relatives when they're saying, "Look, something's wrong." Well, you know, you raise a good point, and. Um, the science shows that when a physician meets the patient for the first time and says, what brings you in here today? They interrupt the patient in about 12 seconds. And good uh, physicians know that if you simply sit on your hands and remain silent, that if you let the patient talk, eventually they will tell you the diagnosis. And um, I think many organizations have played, uh, have placed an emphasis 
on patient and family and involvement and recognize that shared decision-making really requires the input of patients and family members. I always feel very worried for uh, elderly patients who come to the hospital without someone to advocate for them. And uh, the role of uh, a family and advocates cannot be underplayed. I also will echo what Louise said. We don't have general awareness of sepsis outside of healthcare facilities, even though there have been many campaigns for awareness of symptoms of stroke, uh, the acronym FAST, uh, awareness of uh, early heart attack treatment, and even doing CPR. There's CPR training, uh, kiosks and airports and whatnot. The same thing does not exist at all for sepsis. And I think uh, better appreciation of what, of what is the, you know, the biggest killer uh, of hospitalized patients is sorely needed. Thank you. Melissa, um, could we turn to the UK? Because there I think you, you've uh, been uh, pretty successful in, in, in spreading the, the awareness outside, outside the medical and healthcare professionals to the general public. That's, I have a, um, my, uh, one of my brother-in-laws in, in the UK, um, and uh, he, he's managed to get sepsis twice, but each time it was picked up straight away. He, he was aware that perhaps something was wrong, and the hospital took immediate action. So instead of being a, a, a serious case, he was uh, you know, back home in record time. That's great to hear. That's exactly what we want to hear. Um, it, you're exactly right. I think 50% of treating the patient is treating the family. Um, there is no one better to understand the subtle changes and subtle signs of the patient than their loved one. And certainly with those with children like mine who was nonverbal, I am his voice and his ears. Um, we have a system in the UK called the National Early Warning School. And it is a list of parameters where they look at the um, symptomology of the patient and they mark them according to how far away from normal they are, so to speak. And one of the parameters on there is the concern of a loved one. And it's certainly used on the paediatric early warning score, parental concern. Um, and whilst there are some hospitals that uh, like to deviate sometimes, by and large, 90% of um, the, the early warning scores in all hospitals in the UK will have a parental concern or a loved one, uh, a carer concern. And I think that's really important um, because, as, as Ken pointed out, um, they will generally tell you exactly what's wrong with them within a few minutes. So and again, like you say, it's awareness of the public. If you can get the public to you and they can say to you, I think I have sepsis and you use that word, the physician is then able to say it is sepsis or I suspect it's sepsis because of or it isn't sepsis because of. That's reassurance, not false reassurance. And with that, you can build on something. OK. And, and Mary, in, in Australia? On, uh... Yeah, um, similar a bit to, um, you know, what Melissa was saying. We're not, not that far down the track, uh, um, but... Uh, you know, when my son was dying, I remember saying, I, th I think he has leukemia. And they said to me, why? And I said, that was the only thing I could think of that would explain how sick he is. Now, that probably should have triggered them to look deeper, um, but it, it didn't. So we we talk about educating the public and we um, do a lot of public awareness using the term, could it be sepsis, to trigger 
then a clinician to look for it. It almost obliges them to look for it when you ask, could it be, and they've got to rule it in or out. But um, we still, we, we don't have a national awareness campaign. Um, the clinical standard, we talk about uh, listening and working with the parent or the, um, the family. The clinical standard is a quality statement that, you know, you need to work with the family. And if the family is raising concerns, um, you need to look, look deeper. Um, the, their new, their pathways have been introduced both in, in um, emergency departments and in, um, in ward here in Queensland in the state I live in, which again, um, talks about, or, you know, expects that, um, the family plays a role in educating the clinician on this is not normal. Um, my child is very, very ill. Um, you need to look deeper, but could it be sepsis is the phrase we are, we're trying to get across here in Australia. We're doing, a, a, um, the, the department of health here in Queensland do a lot of campaigns, but it's, it's quite internal. Um, but I think using that word sepsis, asking if it could be sepsis and, and educating the public to ask that is, is critical because that will trigger or that should trigger someone to look for that and either rule it in or out. Thank you. Um, I, I, I'd like to sort of broaden the discussion slightly um, to the, really try and answer the question. Um, there are a lot of countries where not much has been done yet to tackle sepsis, at least publicly, for either lack of resources or whatever. In some cases, they may be European countries where you'd think they'd be more advanced in, in uh, addressing sepsis. But um, what, what, what sort of advice do you think one could give to people in countries where not much has been done yet, but there's there are people who have suffered sepsis. What advice would you give to anybody who was wanting to start an advocacy action, a patient association or, or something similar? From your experience, what sort of things would you say, this is the way to tackle it? Perhaps we could start with um, Kieran again. Well, I think, Michael, we've talked about the, the hard elements here and I, I forget sometimes that we have an audience other than ourselves. When I addressed, gave the Global Alliance uh, in Germany last year, we had 172 countries watching in. And sometimes we forget we've had successes in the United States. So I, I think we encourage them is that they've got to stay with that boulder we talked about because we started with the boulder. And if you look at today, our successes not just in New York State, but CMS, as someone said, have done a fantastic job on, on national programs. CNS, CMS credited the meetings with us with putting a national, implementing a national um, policy in place. It took us a long time to get that meeting. CDC were very tough at first to get to. But Tom Frieden, the head of it, said, I want to thank the Staunton's for persistently going at us. And uh, we kicked down the doors. But I would encourage the people not to just say, well, we didn't get the meeting with A, we didn't get the meeting with B, because, you know, success, success is many fathers, failures and orphan, right? And, and I just think that any of those countries, to look at what's gone out there, start at local government, start at local policy, and, and even in building an organisation, you start with your relations, you start with your community, and you start with your local paper. 
and then you go on to your polls. Because just remember that this year, we have got it in the United States federal budget, federal government and multi-zillion dollar budget has money and wording for sepsis. That didn't happen overnight. And this year we got the 100 senators to agree on World on National Sepsis Day. 50 Democrats, 50 Republicans came together, 100 of them, and voted aye in favour of it. So I think to those many thousand watching us today in other countries is it takes... I mean, I don't want to quote some political person, but it does take more than a village. It takes a lot of people in here. But anyone here and any of the countries who have successfully done that and saved lives says, listen, go for it. It can be done. And it came at a high price to all of us. All of my wife just here would say the same thing. And I'm sure Miriam and Melissa would say the same thing to us. Go for it. Get out there. There's no difference. I mean, we would expect the European socialist countries with socialist healthcare to grab this and run with it. They haven't. We have led the way in many cases. So I say to those countries out there, those people, get it up, get going and go for it. You can do it. Thank you. Dieran, perhaps you'd like to give us a viewpoint as you're the, the youngest association. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with everything that has been said, and I suppose the message really I'm hearing is to just go for it and that there's no time like the present. Um, and I think, I suppose, just in terms of our own um, foundation, I suppose there was a little bit of negative feedback at times in terms of things like, oh, well, you know, is a lot of this about scaremongering and, you know, you're creating a lot of um, unnecessary hysteria and hype amongst members of the public. Um, and that sort of thing, you know, at times maybe got me down and some of the others, but I suppose it's just drowning out the negativity and focusing on the positive. And I mean, the message is that the more early awareness, diagnosis and treatment we have, the more lives we'll save and the more better outcomes we will have generally. And so like, as lay people, we can't do much about diagnosis and treatment, but we can about the awareness. And so the focus is very much on that. And I think that we're absolutely right and correct to be focusing our attention on that. Um, and I suppose I'm very lucky as well to have as part of the foundation, the Corcoran family too. And, and you know, we're talking a lot here, I suppose, about parents who've lost children. And, and they're, they're, I suppose, the reverse of that because um, the Corcoran family... They, they lost Tracy, who was 37, and she left behind her um, when she died two years ago, her two children, um, Sophie and William, who are now kind of coming into their teens and they're growing up without a mother. So, like, it's devastating whatever way it happens, um, parent losing a child or child losing a parent. But um, Tracy's sister, Sinead, is, is, uh, and brother James and wife Lorraine are members, and like what sticks out with me is, is Tracy's sister saying to me, Dearin, you know, nothing's going to bring Tracy back. But she said, I want to do whatever I can to, to help and to prevent another family having to go through this. She said, I would literally sit down and lick stamps all day, seven days a week, if I thought it was going to, you know, prevent other people losing their sister to sepsis. And I just thought that was just so, so, so really moving. Um and so that's all I'd say is we've had a really positive experience since we started the foundation and so many people in Ireland have contacted us and said they've had their own experience of they've had the, or they've had their own loss and they just want to help and they just want to be involved and we're creating a really lovely sense of community 
So I would encourage anyone, wherever they are, to um, don't don't dwell on it, just do it. Thank you, Melissa. Perhaps you could give us a view from, the, let's say, one of the most advanced countries in this respect. Um, what, what, what advice do you think uh, your sepsis trust would give to uh, a, a somebody in a country starting up an action? Um, I echo everyone else's thoughts. I think um, every, every, boy, every voice and every person matters and to never stop because no matter, you don't need to have a really, really big platform to make an impact. And as they say, every footprint leaves, you know, a memory on this earth. And you've got to start somewhere and you grow and you grow. And we have a community. We have um, a, a community in the, this, on social media. We have volunteers. We have those that have survived or are, are bereaved. And they are part of social media groups. They are part of face-to-face groups. They support each other and they grow and they share their stories and they're listened to and they're heard. And that makes them feel um, empowered I think and so I would just really really encourage people to to not stop keep going keep putting one foot in front of the other and if you know sometimes you do have to take a break you have to stop and sit down and take a breather because it can be mentally exhausting doing what we do but just know that you know out of darkness comes hope and we all live with hope Um, and so just keep on going. Thank you. Well, I think we're going to have to start uh, wrapping up this this session. Um, I, I thank you all for your uh, contributions and useful discussion. I, I, whether we could bring out some some points when talking about what um, uh, family and uh, can particularly can do to um, uh, how do we say have effective advocacy and the actions that could be taken. Now, some of the things I've listening to what's been said, I mean, one of the things comes through that um, we should encourage people to hammer on doors, don't take no for an answer. Um, and um, another thing that seems to come out from many of comments is that um, one should really uh, use as much as possible the media. Um, don't keep quiet, make it public. Um, you know, you've got, I think, uh, if you can get a spot on uh, a television, for example, or you can get uh, something which really penetrates households um, and makes people aware. And what's, would people agree with that as actions that one should really be looking at? from the point of view of, of uh, survivors and, and uh, family members uh, to really to shake things up. Any, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I'll chime in, Michael. And I don't make it a habit to quote Joseph Stalin, but he said something that is very profound, that the death of one person is a tragedy. The death of a million people is a statistic. And I think um, for the other members of the panel who've been very successful, they have started with a story of, of a loved one that they have lost and have carried on in their memory. But that, I think, is the, the most important way to move forward is with the stories, not statistics.
Okay. Um, Can I add something as well? Yes, please. You know, yes. it, 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 it was, if I had had the power of social media uh, when we were raising funds for um, the, the uh, pediatric intensive care, I would have tripled that amount. And social media is incredibly powerful. And for those who don't know where to start, it's really, it's, a, it's about the stories and it's about collecting other stories as well. And, um, and through a, a, a group, then you can um, also identify some leadership, which is really important as well. And I think that's a great place to start is, is just harnessing that, that social channel to gather stories and momentum. Well, thank you. Um, I think it's time to thank you all for your contributions and for this uh, discussion. Um, I see that we're coming to the end, and I, I believe I've just seen uh, a, a note here from Marvin that uh, there's going to be a session later, or, or a media session, session 15. So uh, this is a bit of an introduction, if you like, to that. Um, so thank you all uh, for your contributions you. in the discussion. Um, I hope I hope it will have um, penetrated well because I, I see that we've had some. I think a thousand people have been uh, uh, switched into this, so we've had a, a good audience. Um, I think it's also perhaps time to thank the organizers for their um, setting up this uh, session, setting it up again. And um, I hope now that we can also um, thank the uh, various sponsors for um, supporting this whole um, event and this session in particular. I'm happy to say that uh, I've seen that one or two of the sponsors have uh, a presence in my home country, Belgium. So I shall be uh, know whose doors to knock on in the coming weeks. Um, so um, I get all sorts of messages coming up here, but um, I think now we should be closing off. Um, unless anybody wants to add something before we run out of time? I think it's important to thank the organizers, Imrana, Tex, Dr. Daniels, Marvin, and yourself. And I think for us here today as parents, Preston, William, and Rory, to remember that we must keep this going. And that's what we all commit to. There's no turning back. Thank you to all the organizers. Uh, indeed. Thank you to the organizers um, and the sponsors. Um, I believe we're going to get a, a list of the sponsors coming up shortly. Um, we've got the gold sponsors, silver sponsors, and is it um, bronze sponsors who've made this whole thing possible? Fair pleasure. Well done. Well, Thank you all, and goodbye, everybody. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who helped making this possible. 
Session 14 will be available momentarily and we will conclude the fourth WSC with Sessions 15 and 16 next Tuesday, June 20th. See you next week.